Hear the word of the Lord. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's not hard to feel the allure of a world without boundaries, um, without demarcation, adventure without limits, Uh, maybe after watching the Royals last night, a world without winners and losers, Um, no heaven or hell, no no right or wrong way of doing or being, Um, a world where there's no truth, no absolutes, which means no judgment. Whatever works simply works. For some, they would describe this as a world that is freeing, it's liberating. And we could imagine that John Lennon would love it, but what about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? A few years ago, Woody Allen um, wrote and directed, I think one of his most overt in capturing his philosophy, uh, a movie called Whatever Works. And it has the classic Woody Allen you know, style of humor, cynicism, um, probably not the best movie for children, but... At the very base of it, uh, the whole idea is that you do whatever you can in life, anything you can in order at worst to make life bearable or at best to make life livable. That's your best hope, to make life livable. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? Well, let's watch a short clip together. Let me tell you right off, okay? I'm not a likable guy. Checkmate, you little putzer. Hey! I was considered for a Nobel Prize in physics. I didn't get it. Mom, that man's talking to himself. Come on, Justin. This is not the feel-good movie of the year. So if you're one of those idiots who needs to feel good, eh, go get yourself a foot massage. What's the matter, Boris? I'm, I'm dying. Should I call uh, an ambulance? No, no, not now. I, I mean, eventually. I said, Lord, just say something. Break your silence. I can't take any more misery. Nothing, right? And all that money you put in the tin box every Sunday. People make life so much worse than it has to be. But on the whole, we're a failed species. Forrest, do you want to be buried or cremated? All right, I really, I really don't want to talk about that, okay? I think I want to be cremated. All right, we could just shut up, creeping? There's no worms. Daddy? I've come to beg your mother's forgiveness. You cheated on her and then dumped her for her best friend. Lord, I've sinned. Please forgive me. Why, why, why do all the religious psychotics wind up praying at my doorstep? love you can get and give whatever happiness you can provide every temporary measure of grace whatever works that gives you warm fuzzies doesn't it um 
And yet, I mean, his worldview is so explicit. I mean, he starts actually the beginning of the movie and ends uh, the movie with the phrase, whatever love you can get and give, whatever happiness you can filch or provide, every temporary measure of grace, whatever works, whatever works. This outlook on life is called relativism, at least when we're in the uh, the realm of ideas. But when it gets down to our daily decision-making process, it's easily communicated as pragmatism. Now, relativism, it doesn't just hold truth loosely, but rather the major tenet of relativism is that there are no absolutes, and whatever works for you is what's right for you, and no one has the right to say otherwise. Now, each of us in here might like to think that we're a lot better than Woody Allen. Um, He's easy to throw under the bus. Uh, He's had a pretty peppered story, but we all tend to have this desire, and we can all fall prey easily chasing after temporary happiness in the moment. We like boundaries. That's why we have firewalls on our computers, locks on our doors. That's why we screen calls on our iPhones. We like boundaries until the boundaries keep us from something we want. We like limits until they actually limit us rather than someone else. And then when no one else is looking, we play a little more gray, a little more loosey with those lines of demarcation. If we look across actually our culture, Now we find a world where truth is only acceptable if it's put in the quotation marks of personal preference. And if it can't be, if it can't stay there, then it needs to be discarded completely. I've heard it plenty of times in conversations, and I'm sure you have as well, where somebody says, well, if that works for you, great. Or who are you to tell me how to live my life? And we find ourselves in a world without limits, but all the more isolated, all the more alone. Even in Disney's Frozen, um, Elsa sings in her chart-topping hit, right? Let it go with every one of my nieces screaming out of tune with her. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, right? Finally, or not really. And before we go, which is really common in the Christian community, we can point back to the 60s and 70s and say, aha, see the cultural revolution. It was never like this before. What we're actually going to see is that this philosophy, this perspective isn't all that new. Yeah, there are some unique nuances in our culture, but Christianity's encountered relativism in various forms throughout its history. And throughout history, every time followers of Jesus rest in knowing that there are endless ways to be enslaved, but only one way to be free. There are endless ways to be enslaved, but there's only one way to be free. So this morning, as we walk through our text we're going to tap into just three prominent ways in which we are trapped in relativism as we make our way to our only hope to freedom, okay? And this leads us to a guy named Pilate. I mean, anybody not heard of Pilate before? Exactly. (laughs) The bummer is 2,000 years ago, he's remembered for doing one thing, killing Jesus. Talk about a legacy. Um, Anybody else want to leave that legacy? I mean, if anybody should be free, it's this guy, He's pretty much our ancient relativist, the ultimate pragmatist. He's wealthy, he's educated, he's powerful. And yet when he denies the truth that's standing right in front of him, we begin to see the chains that bind him. This fall, we've been journeying together, listening to Jesus as he listens to others. And we've been seeing some of these stories, these encounters, in the gospel account of John. So early on, we saw how Jesus listens to the questions of the skeptic. We saw how Jesus actually listens through the silence of the satisfied. He hears the voice 
of many times the ones that's discarded, the voiceless. And this morning, when Jesus listens to Pilate, we actually see that he hears the uncertainty of the relativist. And it all comes down to this short but loaded question, what is truth? What is truth? If you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 18? If you're using one of the community Bibles, you can find our passage on page number 588. And it's here in this passage, John 18, beginning in verse 33, where we step into an interrogation. Jesus is dragged before Pilate by the soldiers, and Pilate comes swinging with his first question. So, are you the king of the Jews? And this question makes no sense, unless, of course, we back up quickly and give some context as to where this question comes from. You see, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they couldn't tolerate Jesus any longer. He challenged their power too many times. He disagreed and was proven right too many times. He came alongside and healed and broke some religious faux pas or committed some religious faux pas, broke some religious rules too many times. And so what they did is they paid one of Jesus' closest followers. They paid him to portray Jesus with a kiss, and it works. And it's in the middle of the night that they capture him. And then in this kangaroo court, also in the middle of the night when no one else is around, he's found guilty of these trumped-up charges. The next step comes really quickly, and he's handed over to Pilate. Early in the morning, the text says, and earlier in John 18, and they couch their accusations within politics. They say, yes, he says he's the Messiah, the promised king, because they know Anyone who claims to be a king instantly puts themselves at opposition with Caesar. And if these trumped-up charges can be proven true or validated to Pilate, then Pilate has no other choice but then to put Jesus to death. So back to our interrogation. So are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus kind of presses into Pilate's question a little further. In verse 34, he says, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate's impatience flares up. I mean, he's a Roman. He's not a Jew like this prisoner. Pilate's a governor, not a pawn in someone else's scheme. He doesn't have a dog in this fight. And so he highlights to Jesus in our text, he's like, look, this is your own nation, your own people, your own leaders who did this to you, which raises the question even further, so what did you do? Are you really a king? And Jesus doesn't just answer with a yes or no, which is really interesting. And here's why. And we've all all been in these situations. You're in a conversation with someone, and you may be using the same words, the same terms, but you're referencing different dictionaries. Those words mean very different things to different people. You see, Jesus' kingdom, he makes it clear, it's not from this world. It's very different. It's not going to take power through the normal means of war, manipulation, and violence. Actually, if you saw his king and if you saw him as the king and saw his kingdom, it probably would look very foreign to any king or kingdom we've ever known before. So instead of saying yes and then Pilate filling that word with all of his schema, all of his ideas and his pictures and his images, thinking of Caesar and Rome rather than Jesus and an otherworldly kingdom, Jesus says in verse 37, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Talking about his kingdom, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And 
Maybe Jesus had committed some religious faux pas that had ticked off the religious leaders, but from Pilate's vantage point, at this stage, as we're reading in John's gospel, he could care less about the superstitions of the Jewish leaders. And from what he can tell, from what he can assess, Jesus is not this violent insurrectionist that everybody's pointing him out to be. He seems like a harmless um, philosopher. I mean, he's talking about truth. And so Pilate, the sophisticated Roman governor, he doesn't have time to squabble over issues of truth. I mean, truth, what is truth? I've got a mob to control that's coming out. And we're left kind of with this hanging question because Jesus doesn't answer it. And Pilate really, well, we ask the question ourselves, what is truth? And absolute truth, it's defined as a claim that's true everyone or true everywhere for everyone for all of time. That's why even the truth is defined and many times characterized as something that's dependable, something that's accurate. It's true for everyone and every place for all time. And Jesus makes one of the most audacious claims right here. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone. Not some people, not just people born into Western culture, but everyone. Those who pursue the truth will absolutely find him at the end. And if he's wrong, then Jesus is actually one of the most arrogant people we've ever come across in the world. He's probably one of the most arrogant people we come across in the world if he's wrong. But if he's right, if he's right, well, well, before we go down that road, just to reiterate, Pilate isn't looking for a definition for truth. He's not looking for an answer. And he, he thinks he's completely free at this point to do what he wants as the Roman governor over Jerusalem. And he misses Jesus' invitation completely. You see, there are endless ways to be enslaved, but there's only one way to be free. And when Pilate steps in front of the crowd, that's when we really begin to see just how free Pilate is. Three times, if you continue on in the text, in chapter 18, verse uh, 38, when you get down to chapter 19, verse 4, and chapter 19, verse 6, three times, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt, which is what he's saying. What he's basically saying is, I find no legal basis for putting Jesus to death. There's nothing about what you've said that actually says that this man is deserving of the death penalty. And what he does is he tries three times to appease the crowd. I find no guilt in this man, but there is one. There's Barabbas. He is an insurrectionist who is very guilty. And if you're just looking for a spectacle, you've got this tradition. Why don't you take Barabbas and we'll free Jesus? No, we want Jesus. Okay, so then Pilate grabs Jesus and gives him a good beating so that when he comes out, he's bloodied and he's got this crown of thorns. Maybe the crowd will have pity over Jesus and see how just weak he is. See, look at this man. Behold the man. I find no guilt in him. No, we want Jesus. Well, why don't you kill Jesus? Why don't you guys do it yourselves? And every time, each time, Pilate tries to pawn it off, tries to figure out something to make it work. The shouts become louder and they say, no, Pilate, you do what only Rome can do. You crucify Jesus. You see, even though Pilate is the authority in Jerusalem, he's actually not in control. He's ironically trapped without his own limits. And as soon as we get rid of any concept of truth, what we're left with is the voice of the majority, or at the very least, the loudest and sometimes the most oppressive voice to guide us forward. For any community to actually thrive, 
for human beings to flourish, morality can't just be a social construct formulated by the majority. For example, what about 200 years ago when most people thought slavery was okay? If you think slavery was not okay in the United States, you've just proven that majoritarianism doesn't always work in defining morality. But what does Jesus say in chapter 18, verse 37? Everyone who hears, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. When the crowd is screaming one thing, when the culture is biased toward a particular destructive viewpoint, Jesus quietly and confidently speaks truth and actually proclaims himself as the plumb line of what is flourishing and good. Jesus once said earlier in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus, he bears witness to the truth. And to everyone who listens to his voice, we see the truth brings freedom from the enslaving opinions of others. The insecurity, the back and forth, the rocking of the waves, the enslaving opinion of others, it can destroy us. And I want to ask us the question, do you have the freedom that comes from knowing you're no longer enslaved to everyone else's opinions? Otherwise, your life's going to be all over the place, and you're always going to feel like you're failing. There are endless ways to be enslaved, but there's only one way to be free. Well, after Pilate realizes the crowd is indeed bloodthirsty, the text says he kind of freaks out, and he returns back to the governor's quarters to dig in a little bit deeper with Jesus. Only this time, Jesus doesn't say a word, at least not at first. And if Pilate's known for anything, it's not his patience, <laughs> it's not his humility. And so in chapter 19, verse 10, Pilate says to Jesus, now you're not going to talk to me? I have the authority to either free you or to keep you enslaved. I have the authority to crucify you or to give you life. Answer me. And I want you to picture this. Jesus, bloodied and abandoned by everyone else, points out what we already know. Pilate isn't the one in control. Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had not been given you from above. Unless it would have not been given you from above. You're not in control, Pilate. You're not the final authority of what's happening here. And in our culture, we need to hear that because we have unprecedented liberties, don't we? We think that the way we'll be happy is if we're given freedom and finally being the final authority of our own lives. We want to be the judge and the jury. But think about it, really. Do you think you can handle that? Do you think you can live with that responsibility, always looking over your shoulder saying, did I choose really the best thing? Is that the best that life has to offer? Did I really do my best there or now is my life wrecked the whole way through? I mean, think of all the options out there. What is the best decision? Life's not like the movie Click. Do you remember that with Adam Sandler? <laughs> Where he could just press a button and rewind and actually make a different decision after he realized how terrible the other decision he made was. We can't do that in our lives. The decisions we make, we stick with, and now we have to live with. For example, how do you invest your time? Do you go serve at KCRM when you have a free moment, or do you catch up with The Walking Dead on, the net on Netflix? It's a tough answer. Not really. If so, then 
you know, or here's the other question. Do you get married or do you remain single? If you do get married, who, who do you marry? When your marriage gets rocky, do you fight for it or do you give up on it? In the midst of that, if you do have a divorce, do you get remarried? Because in all of these things, you only get married the first time once. There are certain things you can't take back. And it's exactly this life without limits, but yet with endless choices that's led some like a Barry Schwartz. He's a 30-year professor of social theory and social action. After a series of studies, writes a book called The Paradox of Choice. And he highlights how in Western culture, this, this central belief that, that freedom is good, worthwhile, and essential for being human. I think that's an important component. But then he says, therefore, the way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. The more choice people have, the more freedom they have. The more freedom they have, the more welfare they have. And this is an underlying thesis on Western culture. And then he notices that what actually happens in most people is that all this choice produces paralysis rather than freedom. And it's one of the critical contributions as to why depression is such on the rise within Western culture. In a culture with so much mobility, so many options, with people trying to be their final authority and determining their own life, People are petrified with failing. Either that or they're unduly and consistently miserable with the choices they've made because they have so many other options and saying, really, did I make the best one? And they're so overwhelmed that they can't get themselves out of bed. But it gets worse. (laughs) Aren't you glad you came this morning? That's so great. Um, Not only are you bombarded with an infinity of decisions, then ask yourself, which you do you really trust to call the shots? Which you do you trust to call the shots? Your 12-year-old you who's amped up with hormones? Your 18-year-old you who finally gets his first taste of independence? Your 25-year-old you who's now just entered into your vocation for the first time? Your 30-year-old you? Your 40-year-old you? What is the you that you really trust to finally have all the answers to make the best decisions? That's overwhelming. Because I think each of us can look back this past year, this past month, and realize and see moments in our lives where we've dropped the ball miserably, where we thought there was a better decision to make there. Now look back at Pilate. He's in a position no one really wants to be in. He's faced with limited understanding, has the opportunity to decide, tries to wash his hands, as we see in another gospel account, giving us a fuller picture of the historical situation, and still in his decision is remembered in history as the guy who gives the go-ahead for Jesus' death. That's awesome. But what does Jesus say? Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And in the paradoxical nature of the gospel, when we listen to Jesus, the truth brings freedom from being your final authority. The truth brings freedom from being your final authority. I know this is going to sound crazy, um, but true freedom... True freedom is actually being willing to give someone who's smarter the ability to call the shots. True freedom comes from letting someone who knows better call the shots in your life. It doesn't mean we no longer think for ourselves, but we do begin to ask, how does this, whatever this is in your life, how does this in my life align with Jesus and his final authority on truth, on flourishing, on good? Do you have the freedom that comes from knowing you are no longer your own final authority? There are endless ways to be enslaved, but there's only one way to be free.
Returning to our passage in chapter 9, verse 12, we now find Pilate. He's unraveling at this point. Um, He's trying everything he can to stop Jesus from being crucified. And there only seems to be one thing that's going to get him out of this mess. One thing. What is it? It's to ignore justice. To ignore justice. Whatever works, right? And it does work for Pilate, not for Jesus. Look at chapter 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. What we find is that when truth is thrown out, then there is no space for moral obligation. Without truth, there is no room for justice when we don't feel like doing it or when there feels like there's a better way out. The crowd wants Jesus dead. Pilate's afraid for his career or even worse, his life at Caesar. And when he's at the point on freeing someone who is guiltless or listening to the voice of the crowd and protecting himself, he chooses injustice. With all the weight of being a Roman governor, he feels powerless. Without truth, there is no basis to confront injustice in the world. Dostoevsky, in his book, Brothers Karamazov, writes, If God does not exist, then everything is permissible. If God doesn't exist, then everything is permissible. There is no longer a rational safeguard against oppression. There may be irrational ones, but there is no rational safeguard against oppression. For example, there are some countries in the world where women are forced to stay in the home. They are excluded from community, from entertainment, from education. Um, and they're not even allowed to drive. They're treated as slaves. And some of us in here might say, hey, we think that's wrong, but why? Well, they ought to change. Why? What makes your opinion any better than anyone else's? Well, I believe, yes, I do believe that all viewpoints are socially constructed. But since I'm Harvard-educated, white, middle-class, Western, I think this is actually the best way for them to live in that community. You see... Without the basis of truth, then all we're left to fight opposition and oppression is merely egocentric viewpoints. My way is better than your way. Who's to say? You may try for change, like Pilate, but it'll just come down to who's stronger at the end of the day. You know, you look at Nietzsche. I mean, look at that stash. That is one. I love that stash. Um, My wife would never let me have that stash, but... You know, you look at Nietzsche, this 19th century atheistic philosopher. What I love about Nietzsche is actually he's very consistent. He's an atheist. He holds to a worldview where God doesn't exist, and he allows the rest of his worldview to be consistent with that origin. And what he says is, if there is no God, then there is no truth, and everything comes down to the will, to, to, to the will of power. The survival of the fittest, the strongest, will triumph the weak, and we should not stop it. This is the natural order of things. So truth, what is truth? There's only power. 
And so for there to be any challenge of the majority or those who are in power who carry out injustice, there must be an unjudged judge who isn't completely based on arbitrary opinion. We all have an unjudged judge, whether we're Christians or not. But the question is, is it based on arbitrary opinion? I mean, look at William Wilberforce. How did he come abolish the slave trade in England as a Christian He appealed to the dignity of every human being made in the image of God and out of the gospel fought for the freedom of the slave. You look at MLK Jr. who fought against segregation and Jim Crow. As a a Christian, he pointed to the universal law that is founded in who God is. But Gabe, you know, don't absolute truth claims more naturally lead to violence and relativism more naturally lead to acceptance? This is a question we hear a lot, right? Well, the answer is, according to history, no. Both can lead to violence. It's true that Christians have blown it at different points in history, and I apologize for that personally. In my own ways, I've played into that. I mean, you could look at Constantine's violence in the Crusades where a few really big moments when the church totally missed the boat on the mission of Christ. And then, of course, there was another religion, Islam, who has their jihads based on absolute truth as well. But it's also estimated that 141 million were murdered in the name of secularism, the relativistic viewpoint, under people like Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Hitler, and others. It's not a very exciting camp to be in either. You see, no one's innocent in these examples. But it is in the gospel truth that I believe we find freedom from our guilt and also freedom from the abuse of of power. It's only in the gospel truth that we find freedom to deal with our guilt and to give freedom from the abuse of power. Why? Because Jesus is the truth. When he claims earlier in John chapter 14, verse 6, one of the most extremely exclusive and absolute claims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He didn't come dominating with a sword. He doesn't belittle with arguments, but came willingly and died for his enemies on a cross. I mean, think about it. The one who has the most and the ultimate authority in this whole passage here in history, Jesus, the one who's actually most adamant about truth, he doesn't even speak up in his own defense. But instead, he went to the cross freely to pay for our sin, our injustice, And rose again on the third day so that whoever trusts in him will live with him forever. Jesus is not this truth or that truth. He is the truth. And he frees us from the opinions of others to be enslaved on what everybody else is thinking and how that consistently changes like the waves of the sea. He allows us to rest in the final authority of his wisdom as the designer and the creator. We now rest in what is good as he's defined and designed it to be. And he also frees us to admit that we're actually a part of the problem, that we're broken. Because Jesus is the truth, and knowing him and him crucified, we're humbled instead of dominating. We're humbled because we know we need forgiveness too. But in knowing him and in his resurrection, we're given courage and clarity in fighting injustice in our own lives individually and in our culture systemically. If it was anyone else who did anything else other than God become man and die for his enemies, I think I would have cause for question. 
But Jesus is the truth, and he came and died for people who believe a lie so that we might be liberated to true living. Do you have the freedom that comes in rejecting the abuse of power in your own life and in our culture? There are endless ways to be enslaved, but there's only one way to be free. So let me ask us this morning a question. What are you living for? What are you living for and how's that going for you? What are you living for? Your job, your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, affirmation, love, respect, just to have a good time? If so, how's that working out for you? When you get passed over for that promotion, even though you put the extra hours in, when the one you love doesn't love you back with the same intensity, when your respect is belittled, your love feels distant, your affirmation non-existent, when the good times pass, how's that working for you? When we come to the gospel and we hear the question, what are we living for? We see Jesus is the truth and he has lived, he has died, and he has rose again. How's that work out for us? He lived and died and rose again so that instead of being enslaved, paralyzed, and powerless, we might be free to follow him in living the truth now and share the truth with others. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to imagine any other scenario in your life. You're, you're trapped in a burning building with a group of people and you're shown the one way out. Or you're in a nation, you know, catastrophically... Um, the catastrophically that has, uh, that has been infected with Ebola, and somebody has given you a stockpile of the cure, if we're in either one of those situations, we're going to tell others about it. We're going to tell them about the only cure available, about the only way out. So when we come to follow Jesus and we hear that he has come to bear witness to the truth of himself and what God has done in him, I want to give two helpful next steps on how to actually go and share this one way of freedom talking with your friends, your family, and your coworkers who don't know Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here this morning and you're still asking some of these questions, I want you to know we talk about this as a community not to be manipulative, but because we believe that Jesus is the truth so sincerely, we want to share that with you. We want you to know about it. If we didn't share it with you, that means we really don't love you. Because if he's the only way, and we believe he's the only way, that we need those that we love that are around us to come and submit to Jesus. That's what we long for them, out of love, not out of manipulation. So two helpful next steps. One, start with a question. One really easy way to start the conversation with friends who are wrestling with relativism is to actually start with the question we just asked of ourselves. What are you living for, and how's that working for you? What are you living for, and how's that working for you? You're sitting at lunch at work with a friend and you're catching up and you say, hey, I've been asking a question of myself recently and I'm wondering your answer. What are you living for? I know it's a heavy question, but I'm curious your answer. What are you living for? I don't know. I guess I'm living what everybody else is living for. I have a good life, make it by. Well, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? And I want you to be prepared because in those conversations, when you start with asking a question, there's a good chance they're going to ask the question back to you. Well, that's my answer. What about you? What, are you? what are you living for? And how's that working out for you? Which is why we don't just start with a question. That's step one. And ready for an answer. But we also die for the truth. 
We start with a question, and then we die for the truth. I'm not saying fight arrogantly for the truth, and I didn't say kill for the truth. And that's critical. We're called to selflessly die for the truth the way Jesus did. As soon as we come with a posture of defensiveness or offensiveness, we've actually lost the center message of the gospel. The gospel in and of itself is offensive. We don't have to be offensive. Every truth claim, even the truth claim that says that there aren't any truth claims, try not to do mental gymnastics there, um, which is relativism, every truth claim seeks to make the person superior. For instance, if your truth is whatever works, if that's your truth, whatever works in life, you're basically saying every religion and philosophy up to the 21st century has pretty much been completely bogus because you're a 21st century modern white person or African-American person or 21st century modern person, period. Every other worldview or religion makes itself superior to everyone else. Everyone except for Christianity, which sounds superior, I know. Uh, so hold this. Because at the center of the Christian faith is a God who has all truth, all power, and actually becomes human and dies. He doesn't come forcing everybody to submit, but actually he comes first, becomes human, and dies for those who have disregarded him, for those who have went and sought for other things that work. And as Christians, that's a key aspect to how we define sin, chasing after things that ultimately won't work. And as we chase after those things, God chased after us and died for us so that we might one day be restored with him forever. You see, in trusting that Jesus is the truth, we hear this call to pick up our cross now and follow him out of the freedom that comes through the cross. We trust his paradoxical call that actually in losing our life, we find it. And if we go one step further and losing our life for others, losing the need to have the last word in a conversation, losing the need to always be proven right, losing the need to always be accepted and having to manipulate the truth so that we still are seen as a nice guy, when we really lose our life for others, then others might find it as they see the depths of the truth of the gospel proclaimed and lived. You see, we know that whatever works really doesn't work, does it? It hasn't worked for Woody Allen with his confirmed abuse of his own adopted daughter, legal turmoil, lifelong intense psychoanalysis, and this overbearing cynicism. It didn't work for Pilate, who's powerless to stop injustice. Many of you have stories where it hasn't worked for you either. Look, there are endless ways to be enslaved, but there's only one way to be free. Jesus is the truth, and the truth will set you free. What are you living for? And how's that working for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you because you sent your son Jesus to die for us. As we were lost in our own lies and deception, fumbling to figure out what works, you showed us the one way in which we were designed, the one way in which we are broken, and the one way we can truly be free is through Jesus Christ and him alone. May we hold fast to the truth of the gospel. May we hold fast that Jesus alone is our hope for salvation. 
He alone reveals the life we long to live that flows from your grace. God, by the spirit of truth, may you guide us into all truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.